All right, well, whether good or bad, all of us have had role models in our life, right? Every single one of us, if you're just like stepping back, we're all just trying to figure out how to live this life, right? I mean, every single one of us, we're trying to look to find somebody that we watch, that we impersonate, that we try to live like them. In essence, like we're just kind of like wrestling with this question, how do I just be normal? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do I not be weird? How do I not be that weird person? And who's somebody that I can watch and kind of give me some steps in how to live like this? And I, I've had a number of people that I've like looked up to in my life, especially those that are maybe just a few years ahead of me um, as I think back on my life. But there is one particular guy, his name is Chris, that um, probably had the longest stretch where I just like, watched how he lived and then tried to mimic and do things as he lived before me. So um, I met this guy as, it was kind of a pivotal time in my life. We were moving from uh, a, one side of Oklahoma City to another, and I was in between middle school and high school. And this is a brand new city, and I had got my bearings on this place that I had lived in moved to this new city, and everything just felt different. Even the culture, the people, just their likes, the way they talked, the things that they did, how they acted, and all these different things just felt very foreign to me. And so the question I can just kind of remember that's going through my head, I, I may not have had these words, but it's just the, the emotions and the feelings that I had kind of coursing through my veins is like, how do I function here? This is all really fresh. This is new. Like, how do I live life here. And so this guy, Chris, he was about four years older than me. Um, he was really well liked by people in the circles that I was around. So he was in the same high school that I was in, the church that my family was going to, really well known there. It's a really large church. And so he had a lot of friends. He took me in and really just kind of befriended me, even though I was way younger than he was. And so what I did is I just kind of watched his life. And then I tried to mimic what Chris did. So Whenever I watched him in high school, it's like I'm, I'm coming out of middle school. I'm around all these people that are way older, way bigger than me. Like, how do you do high school? So I just watched him. How do you function and how do you kind of do this stuff? How do you get from school, class, classroom to classroom? How do you go to your locker between? Like, how do you make friends with people in different people group, like uh, circles of friend groups. Like, how do, how do you do all of this? Um, he was just a guy that loved Jesus. And so I kind of watched his life. How did he read the scriptures? He was a guy that loved the Bible. So he tried to memorize it. And so I tried to be like Chris and try to memorize scripture. I was terrible at it, still terrible at it. That's why I have to read things off of a piece of paper every single week because I, I just can't get it to stick in my brain. But man, he, just, he was so good at it. He would just pour himself over the scriptures and he had memorized the scriptures. Um, Cherish and I started dating when we were 16 and Chris was dating a girl that was pretty serious. And so, man, I, like just trying to figure out what does it look like to date? I just watched Chris. He was like, what did, what did Chris do? Like, he takes, he takes her out on a date, and he just guards the relationship really well. And the, the way that he pursued Jesus shaped the way that he treated this girl that he was dating. And so he's like, I, I'm just going to try to do what Chris did. And so all of these things, I'm just trying to look at Chris. I'm trying to mimic Chris, try to do the, way, do the things and the ways that he lived. I'm just trying to do that. And as we're in this book of Genesis... What's happening here is this guy, Moses, is writing the book. He writes the first five books of the Bible, right? And so he's writing the book of Genesis, and he's writing it not only to tell human history, but also to provide examples for 
the Israelites as they're working through the wilderness of like, this is what it looks like to live and follow in obedience to God, right? Like he, he's giving them human history, yes, but he's trying to lay before them the good, bad, and ugly. Like here are the examples. Here's the things. Here's the people that have come before you. Here's the way that God's worked in the midst of human history. Here's the way that he's preserved his promise throughout all of the scriptures. And he, he's coming and he's bringing all these things. And if you're looking at the book of Genesis, and we've been in the story of Noah for a number of weeks now, I believe he's kind of bringing Noah to the Israelites as this example and this model for the Israelites to look at as they're wandering through the wilderness. So, I mean, I can just imagine Noah or Moses having people come to him just constantly asking the question, how? Like, how do we do this? What, what does it look like? What, how do we, what's a model? Who's an example? And I just see Moses bringing this guy, Noah, before his people constantly, over and over again. This is like, look to the life of Noah. Here's, here's Noah. And so as we're looking at this passage tonight, I think there's a couple of ways that he's trying, Moses is writing this to try to draw out a couple of patterns and examples by which we're to look at Noah's life and then we're to try to mimic here and now. I think that's what he's trying to do in parts of the retelling of the flood and the story of Noah is he's writing it in such a way that he's trying to extract and draw out certain things that we recognize as God's people so that we can mimic and we can model here in this life as we seek to follow Jesus in the here and now. And the two things that I think Moses is trying to draw out in this passage are patterns of what obedience in this life looks like as well as worship, all right? Obedience and worship. So I just want to look at Noah's example here in chapter 8, verses 15 through 22. I just want to look at his pattern of obedience that he has before God. I want to look at his pattern of worship that we see here. And as we do this, it leads to this really extraordinary response that God has to the life of Noah and the actions that he's taking as the flood is winding down. And so I want us to kind of like work through this, see these patterns, and then gaze at just how God responds to Noah. And I, I think he has something for us there. So I'm going to work through these patterns for us. And then at the end, I just want to end with some vision, all right? Usually we end with like some application, but I want to end with like, here's where I want us to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, as we look at this, here's as God's people, here's, here's where I think God's calling us to go. And so I want to end there and just kind of give us a vision for like the next 40 days of our life. Here's the church. Amen? All right. So let's look at Noah's pattern of obedience first. We see it in verses 15 through 19. I'll, I'll reread it to refresh us so that we can extract some things out of it. So here's what vif, verse 15 says. And then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are there, that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives, they came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. All right, so here's what I feel like I've tried to do over the last like three to four weeks. I feel like I've tried to just take these narratives and be like, just try to put yourself in Noah's shoes. 
I, I feel like I'm just constantly trying to be like, okay, here, try to imagine that you're Noah in this situation, and then think about how he's probably, all these things that God's telling him, all these things that are happening in this world, how they're just like hitting his heart, hitting his life, the emotions that it's probably stirring inside of them, and I just want to do it again, all right? So imagine you're Noah here, all right? The the flood is winding down. You've been on the ark for over a year. So you have this confined space. And who is Noah around? He's around his family for over a year. And then he's on this boat, this floating device with literally animals of every kind that are on this, this boat. And so like some of you may hear that and it's like, well, that just sounds like my holidays, right? Like just surrounded by my family and confined space with a bunch of animals. There's all these smells, all the, the loud chatter that's going on. It's like, well, okay, then you're probably starting to get it, right? Like the, what Noah is experiencing in the boat with his family, if you're like, that's my holidays, now just expanded over a year. That you're in this confined space with all those people, with all these animals. And the scene before us is the flood is winding down, is Noah's just staying put. Noah's on the boat. Like if we remember last week, the boat has surfaced. He sent out the birds. They've come back. They're showing signs of life that the, the waters, the rushing waters have died down. There's signs of life that are out in the world. But Noah stays put. Now, if it's you and me, the first sign that we get from those birds, like, I'm getting out. I, I need a breath of fresh air, right? All these animals, like, just a bunch of poop everywhere. And so you, at least you're trying to, like, stick your head out the window or something, right? But Noah doesn't budge. He doesn't budge. And look, he doesn't budge until he hears God's voice, all right? So here's the temptation with this part of the passage, all right? It's so easy to look at this, to read it, and see that God tells Noah to get off the boat, and then Noah does it, and then move on with the rest of the story. But I think we have to stop here, all right? We have to stop here, and we need to recognize something, all right? And here's what I think we need to recognize, that we are nearly three chapters in, and Noah hasn't spoken a word. There's not one single word that Noah has said throughout the whole account, and Actual, uh, and actually, like, you never hear from Noah. He never speaks throughout the whole entire thing. This is five chapters of the Bible, and we don't hear from Noah. He doesn't speak a single word. So here's, like, what's happening. God speaks, and then Noah obeys. So it just see, seems like there's a broken record that's happening here in the Scriptures that God speaks, and then you hear it multiple times, and Noah did everything God commanded. So God approaches Noah. Noah, go build a boat. I don't know what a boat is. What's a boat? Well, here's the blueprint. Here's the things that you got to go do. And then he goes and does it, but we never hear his voice. Then he says, Noah, go gather a bunch of food. And we talked about all the chatter that probably happened as Noah's doing this and some of the cynicism that probably people are feeling like, Noah, do you know who needs that food? You're just hoarding all this food and you're putting on this boat. You're crazy, Noah, all the things that you're doing. But Noah did everything God commanded. And then Noah, God comes to Noah, Noah, go get on the boat and I'm going to bring all these animals. I'm going to literally draw them all to the boat and then I need you to load the boat in a matter of seven days. And we don't hear Noah speak a word, but the Bible tells us that Noah, got, Noah did everything God 
commanded. And then we get what seems like the, expl- the exclamation point on all of this in this passage here tonight because the boat has surfaced. Noah doesn't budge until he hears God's voice. John Calvin puts it like this. How great must have been the fortitude of the man who, after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the flood has ceased and new life has shone forth, does not move yet a foot out of the ark without the command of God. So here's, I think Moses is trying to reveal a pattern to us in what is even the absence of Noah's words here. And here's the pattern, right? First is the power of God's voice in Noah's life. And then secondly, Noah's sensitive heart and responsive spirit to this very voice. There's a reason that, God, that Moses doesn't include any words of Noah. I think he's trying to highlight just the power of God's voice in Noah's life. And then through his obedience, just this repeated statement, and Noah did everything God commanded him. He's trying to reveal to us this sensitive heart and this responsive spirit that Noah has in his life. That's just the pattern for how he lives. And so Moses trying to bring this example of Noah to his people. I can just imagine Moses, he's fielding all these questions in the wilderness of like, what does loving obedience look like, no, like Moses? Like, what, what does it look like? You, you keep telling us like, let's walk in obedience to the commands that God has given us. But what does that look like? And then Noah's like, or Moses is bringing this life of Noah to his people. And it's like, remember the life of Noah. Remember how the power of God's voice resonated in his life, and then he just moved forward in faithful obedience. Well, Moses, what does it look like, okay, as we do this and we follow in loving obedience, but what does like, actual intimacy with this God look like? What does it look like for me to have a heart and a posture where... I don't just know this God that's off in the distance, but he's like close and he's intimate to me. Well, have you considered the life of Noah? Have you looked back at the book of Genesis? Do you remember the accounts that we've worked over time and time again? Look at the life of Noah. I believe Moses is just trying to place this model of Noah before God's people, also us, because he wants us to see this pattern of obedience, this power of God's voice in Noah's life, along with this sensitive heart and this responsive spirit that resides in Noah. Now, here's the good thing for us. Like, we're in a very much better space than the Israelites were as they're wandering through the wilderness. It's a grace of God that they even had the example of Noah. But we're in in an even better spot than the Israelites were because we have Jesus, right? There's no one Absolutely no one that has modeled a sensitive heart and a responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in their life, like the life of Jesus. I mean, if you look in his life and the miracles that happen, you see this fleshed out before us in the stories that are told to us of Jesus. But then you also see it in his death as well. All right, so consider this. Like, you have a story where Jesus, he's coming up to this place called the Pool of Bethesda. And there's this man that's been crippled for 38 years. And so what they do is there's this pattern. You have a lot of people that are lame or crippled that are desiring to be healed. 
And so there's this idea that an angel swoops down over the pool, Bethesda touches the pool, and then whoever gets into the pool first is healed, all right? And so you have all these people that are just surrounding this pool, waiting for like an angel to dive down so they can get into the pool to be healed. So they're all there just longing, desiring, healing, a sort of resurrection in their life. And then Jesus comes up, and he heals this man, and he goes to the religious Pharisees, and they're like, well, how, you, you can't pick up your mat. It's the Sabbath day. So who did this? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. The, the guy left. The guy that did it for me, he left. And Jesus comes back. He approaches him, says, I'm the one that heals you. And then they start persecuting Jesus. And here's Jesus' response to them, all right? He says, I'm not able to do anything on my own. I only do what I see the Father doing, and whatever the Father does is what I do. So you see this in Jesus? Like he's got this sensitive heart and this responsive spirit to what God is doing in his midst. Like he has these open eyes, not just in his head, but also in his heart to what God is doing around him. And Jesus, with a sensitive heart and a responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in his life, steps forward and moves. And what would be an astonishing work on the Sabbath, he does this because he sees the work of God that's taking place in the here and now. So you, you see this a few different times. I, I don't, we can't like spend a ton of time looking at all the other instances, but I do want to jump forward to now John 14. Jesus in the upper room discourse. He's at the final meal with his disciples. He's foretelling his coming death, like literally hours away that he's been foretelling to his disciples. And so he's sharing this meal and what Jesus does in the midst of it, he starts telling them he's about to go to his death. And he says, I won't talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. And he says, he has no power over me, obviously speaking of Satan. And here's what he says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, look, I do as the Father commanded me. And so you see this responsive spirit, the sensitive heart in Jesus to the power of God or the power of, voice, of the voice of God in Jesus' life to the extent that he's willing to go die a sinner's death. He's willing to show just how much he loves the Father, responding to obedience in his life to the point of death, what he knows is going to be excruciating death on a cross. But Jesus, because he has a sensitive heart and a responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in his life, he moves forward and he does it. Do you see that? And so as we look at the life of Noah, and then we also have a better example in the life of Jesus, this question that should stir inside of us is how do we cultivate a sensitivity to God's voice in our life, right? Well, if Moses is putting Noah before his people, and then we get this beautiful image of all of Jesus' life that's laid before us, of a man that has a sensitive heart and responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in his life, how do we cultivate that? And it's not rocket science, all right? It's not like X over Y with you carry the, the, the remainder for whatever it is. Like, it's not this rocket science. It's a relationship, y'all. This is a relationship. You spend time with them, right? Like, how do you grow to know someone? You spend time with them. 
This is what you see in Noah's life. Remember back to Genesis chapter 6. What is said about Noah that's so strikingly different from the rest of the world? It's that Noah walked with God. He walked with God. He cultivated a relationship with the living God. The rest of the world is trying to find a world that is absent of this God and want to attain his status. But Noah is strikingly different in that he walks with God. Then you see in Jesus' life, in Luke chapter 5, it said that the crowds are constantly coming to Jesus. They want to come and sit and hear and listen to the teaching of Jesus. He speaks with authority. He speaks with power. They want to come sit at his feet and listen. They come because they want to be healed. They see the work that Jesus is doing in their midst. And they're like, I need this in my life. And so they're bringing people that have gone to all the doctors. They've gone to all the last resorts that they possibly can. And they hear what Jesus is doing. And they're bringing their friends. They're bringing their loved ones. They're bringing them to Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, the very next statement that is said of Jesus is that Jesus often withdrew to deserted places and he prayed. Do you see this? Look, oh my gosh, we got to see this. All right, like the way that you cultivate a sensitive heart and a responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in your life is you spend time with him. You get with Jesus, all right, so my, here, take this example, all right, my kids, um, they constantly ask us for snacks, all right, they're always asking us for snacks, so, I mean, it's wherever we go, we have to have a snack in the car, like, mid-morning, we have to have a snack, like, it's snacks all over the place, they go, to, they, we have just two big drawers that are in our pantry that they pull out, and it just has, it's just overflowing with snacks, right, we get to the dinner table, and they can't eat. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they get to the dinner table, and my wife, like, she's a great cook. She, does, she cooks the things that she knows that they like, and she'll set the plate down, and then they don't eat. Here, like, look, here's the, a lot of us, we, we, we talked about, like, I'm so busy in my life. I'm so, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I, I, I experience God in like the going in my life and I, I experience God in like the cooking that I do and then going to work and here and there. And like, this is all really good, y'all. But look, it's snacks. These are snacks. And what we are separating is the actual meal that we get to have and we get to sit down with the living God and we get to open up the scriptures and we actually get to feast on Jesus. That we have this God that wants to know us and has literally done everything that possibly could be done in this world to have a relationship with us and we're content with snacks. We're content with goldfish when there's steak on the table. That we, we're like, we're just, uh, I'm going to keep going along with just knowing this God and the passing of my day, but we don't have the 20 to 30 minutes that we'll, we're willing to sacrifice in our life to sit down at the table with this God and to marinate ourselves in these scriptures that he promises when we come to him, when we pursue him, that he will, we will find him and that he will draw near to us. We're content with the snacks when we can have the feast. And look, we have to deal with our spiritual apathy. That we are content with snacks 
and that we have this feast that's before us, we need to be the people that take up Psalm 34 that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an invitation to the meal. You know what I'm saying? That's not the, hey, just throw the goldfish in your mouth throughout your day. No, this is like, come and sit and be delighted. Come find the goodness of God, the relationship that has been won for you in Jesus. Come and sit in it. Come marinate in it. Come enjoy this living God. We, we should take up the words of Paul in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection. This power of the resurrection resides in you because the Holy Spirit, when you call in the name of Jesus, resides in you. We should be the people that have this deep hunger inside of us that I want to have a sensitive heart. I want to have a responsive spirit to the power of God's voice in my life. And I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to take time out of my day. Yes, I'm busy. Absolutely, I'm busy. Like I had a doctor back in Louisville that he told me that he had this single guy that was straight out of college that came to him. He led a small group and he had like seven kids and he had a doctor's practice and the guy came and was like, he didn't come to the small group and he was like, yeah, I, my life is just too busy right now. He's like, you want to talk to me about busy? I'm a, I have, I'm a doctor. I have seven kids. I'm leading in the church. I have all these different things. Don't talk to me about busy. He's like, no, I, he pursued Jesus. And it's like, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever is going on in my life so I can sit with this Jesus. I can be this Mary instead of being this Martha. And I sit at Jesus' feet. And I like want to just know him. You know what I'm saying? We need to deal with our spiritual apathy. John Ortberg, he says like this, we try to create first century community on a 21st century timetable and it doesn't work. You feel that? Look. Noah's placing, or Moses is placing Noah before us as an example. We have a better example in Jesus. Both of them, both of them made it a regularity that they spent time with the Father. They communed with the Father. They built fellowship with the Father. You want to have a sensitive heart, a responsive spirit, where you hear the voice of God in your life, you spend time with them. You hear me? You spend time with them. Now, look, you may be like, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> look, if there's anything that I've seen in my short time in ministry, it's that I can't, like, just show you this in a sermon. But we have spaces for this called discipleship groups in our church. Like, the whole point of discipleship groups is that we're trying to help people get in relationship that gather around the Bible and help you train in rhythms of what it looks like to go spend time with Jesus. So if you want to learn, like, go dive into a group. We do it every single week where we open up the scriptures and we read them together. And we share a life with one another. And we pray with one another. Sometimes it's lame, but that's just life, you know? But what is being instilled inside of us is this rhythm of like, I know what it's like to go and feast on Jesus. So I would love to help you. If you need help, just come ask, and I'd love to get you plugged into a group or to sit down with you and just read the Bible with you. But like me trying to just dispel this to you in a sermon is just not going to do it justice. 
but I would love to teach you what it's like to feast on Jesus. So get in a D group or come talk to me and I, like, we'll start a new group. I don't care. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to spend time with Jesus. So this is our first pattern. The next example we see in Noah's life is worship. And you see this in verses 20 through 22. Here's what it says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night, they will not cease. So the response that you see when Noah gets off the boat is, I, I can only imagine there's two scenarios here, all right? As Noah is getting off the boat, there has to be just two scenarios. Maybe there's more, and I'm just very, like, narrow-minded. But there at least has to be this. It has to either be that the world is covered in death, right? God has literally wiped away every, every human being, every animal that's on the earth, and those bodies don't just disappear. Or maybe God does a miraculous work and they are. Maybe they're gone, all right? Which would lead us to the second one, that the world's just completely empty, all right? Noah walks off the boat and he looks over the bluff and where it used to be the city that he can remember his friend's name, they're gone. The city's gone. He looks over across the the ocean, and he sees the place where he used to go with his family to vacation, and he can think back on the villages that were there that they enjoyed together, but they're gone. Not a single person is there. Um, the closest that I think you can come to find, like, a actual, uh, trying to put you in the shoes of Noah in, like, a show um, was this show called the Last Man on Earth, it's like this sitcom about this post-apocalyptic uh, like show where this virus has wiped away human history. And so I, I, I don't recommend this to you in terms of like the message of the show or some of the things that happen in the life of the show. Just go watch the first episode because what happens is this guy, Will Forte's character, goes and he's he goes to billboards and he takes spray paint and he tells people where to come find him in Tucson, Arizona. And so he goes to like the White House and he's like walking through the White House, this place that would be a very secured, blocked off place. No one's there. And he's walking through it and he's spray painting all these messages saying, hey, if you're alive, come find me in Tucson, Arizona. He goes to all these different places and it's just the world is completely empty. And then as you go through the show, you find that there's actual places of death and they're filled with bodies and they're filled with hazmat suits. And it just kind of puts you into probably what Noah was experiencing as he got off the boat. Like just either the world is covered in death or the world is completely empty. And it just kind of places you there. And as you're thinking about and you're like wrestling with this, what you see in Noah's response is that there's something that's sort of stirred in his spirit, right? So as he sees this world that's probably covered in bodies or is just completely empty, you see two things stirred inside of him. The first is reverence and the second is repentance. 
All right, so reverence is like this mixture of gratitude and respect, right? So as Noah walks off the boat and he either finds the world is empty or he sees all the death that's before him, he has to have this spirit of gratitude and reverence towards God that he's been spared. You know what I'm saying? Like, my God, my God, like, why would you look on me with such grace and kindness that you would spare me? from this disaster that's hit the world. And then you also, as he's faced with the, he's confronted with both the consequence of sin and death in his life, he's moved to the recognition of his own sin and the confession of it, all right? So if you look throughout all the Old Testament, an altar is the, like, one, like, common theme of worship that you see throughout all of the Old Testament. I mean, you have an altar. It's a symbol of worship throughout all of the Old Testament. And so as Noah is dealing with all this, this gratitude, but also the confrontation of his own sin and the consequence of sin, he comes and he worships God, both gratitude and repentance. And he offers the sacrifice, these clean animals that he places down as a sacrificial offering. And God's response to all of it is incredible. He, the Bible tells us that as Noah comes and lays down these sacrificial offerings, that the Lord smells the sacrificial offering and it's a pleasing aroma to him. He, he just, I mean, if you're Noah, you have this altar and then like just... Imagine being God, this world that was just hell-bent on having life apart from you. And then you have this Noah that walks with you. He walks off the boat. He sees the destruction. He's moved to worship. He sacrifices as his first act off of the boat. And then God's there in heaven. And he's, after a world that's just been stained with death and decay and sin, and he smells this offering that's coming from Noah, where it's this heartfelt response of, God, I see what has happened. This is the consequence of my sin. I'm broken. I've seen you. You've revealed yourself to me. I've seen how perfect and good and right you are. But in the face of all of that, I've also seen the decay and the darkness of sin in my life. And my response is I bring this sacrifice. This is the only thing that I can possibly do that's coming to show my gratitude, but also to show my repentance to you. And as he's laying down this sacrificial offering, God's in heaven and this pleasing aroma that hits his nostrils, that isn't just about this animal that's on an altar, but it's actually about the posture of Noah's heart. He looks inside of the man and he sees how his posture is to the living God. And it's the promise that you get here in this passage where he says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. He takes in the sacrificial offering and his response is, I promise, I won't do this again. In light of the sacrificial offering that you've laid down, Noah, Here's my promise to you. Wow. Wow. That we would have a God that is sensitive enough to respond to a heart that sees and responds to God like this. What mercy and kindness. Now look, this is to be our pattern of worship. 
This reverence and repentance, all right? So Noah is the, ex- the example of acceptable worship to Israel in the wilderness. So we don't have the command of God. You don't have the, the G- Moses going up on Mount Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments and all the explanations of what sacrificial looks like for his people working through the wilderness. What Noah does here is he takes these clean animals that all the Israelites in the wilderness would have recognized. He lays down those clean animals and Moses is pointing to Noah's life and say, hey, this is what sacrificial worship looks like in the wilderness is we're waiting for the promised land. And when we get into the promised land, this is what it looks like for us to worship the living God, that you pay attention to Noah's heart here, and then you pay attention to his actions. And this is what worship looks like for us as God's people in a world that's gazing in on us after all that God has done for us as we fled from Egypt. And again, praise be to God, we have a better example, right? So we aren't this people, we don't have an altar here, right? Thanks be to God, we don't have like an altar and we don't have animals that are behind the door that I'm like gonna do this smoke and mirrors thing on you and I'm gonna bring out this animal and it gets like chaotic in here, right? That's, That's not what's about to happen because we have a better model, we have a better example God still shows up, doesn't he? God still works in our midst. He's still showing up to you. Look, he works through the scriptures. He works through friends' lives that have come and shared the good news of Jesus with us. And we've been confronted with this living God. And we've seen how good he is, how beautiful he is, how he's worthy of all that we are But we don't bring and lay down a sacrifice. What we do is we look to the ultimate sacrifice. We look to the cross. We're not the people that have to come and continue to lay down sacrifice after sacrifice. We look at the one true sacrifice that never has to be done again. There's this song um, called Remember by Maverick City. Um, And it goes like this. Man, every time I, I listen to this song, I'm like about ready to run through a brick wall, right? I'm like... I feel like William Wallace in Braveheart. Like, I'm just ready to, I'm, I'm like the Captain America at the end of the scene of the Avengers movie. It was like him, and it's just all of the rest of the army. He's like, well, I guess this is how it's going down. You know what I'm saying? He's like, here I stand. I, I'm, that's me when I listen to this song. It's like, let's go, all right? And here's what it says. The holes in your hands and the wound in your side, 39 lashes brought me back to life. And before resurrection, there was a grave. In hell, there was a battle and my life was saved. So it's this, this is what we do in our worship. We see the living God. We, we hear this good news of Jesus. And then we look to this ultimate sacrifice that happened on the cross. And then I love how the song continues because it has this next uh, series of lyrics. And it, it's just this pointing people back to Jesus. It says, this is our Savior. Look at him. Look at him. And then it, it does that line a couple of times and it moves on. Our Christ Redeemer. Look at him. Look at him. And so I just imagine like, 
Noah comes after the boat, and he, he comes off, and he's facing all these things. His response is he builds an altar, and it's worship before God, and he, this is pleasing aroma that hits his nostrils. For us, in light of Jesus, we're confronted with our sin just as Noah was. We see the face of God because he still shows up, and he still works here. But instead of laying down sacrifices, we're these people in these songs that are looking to the cross of, of Christ, and we're looking, and we're responding in worship because of what Jesus has done for us and then God's like well what makes your your worship acceptable and all we're doing is what those last lines were is we're just pointing to Jesus it's like I I'm this person that comes with empty hands anything that I would try to hold is like sand in my hands it just seeps through my fingers but what I'm doing is I'm pointing to Jesus look at the cross that Jesus hung on for me. Look at the 39 lashes. Look at the crown of thorns. Look at the holes in his hands. Look at everything that he's done for me. He's the perfect, ultimate sacrifice because he's the one that did perfect obedience and he had perfect fellowship with God. And he's the one that in the midst of all of this was willing to lay down his life to show the love that he had for the Father, but then also for us that he sacrificed and he stayed on the cross. What makes your worship acceptable? It's Jesus. Like, I, I have nothing to provide. I have nothing to give. I just point to Jesus. Look at his sacrifice. It only had to happen once, and he's my only hope. And so, look, it's reverence and repentance. We, we, are com we come to the face of God where we see his perfect holiness. And we're confronted, it's like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is before the throne room of God, and he has the angels that are before him, they're singing over God, and he comes to see the glimpse of the perfection of God, and what's his response? I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees his sin. He's broken. And the, the, the coal comes and touches the, the grace of God, the sacrifice of Jesus comes and makes us clean. And so we, it's nothing that I, I have nothing. It's not my obedience, God. It's not that I have treated people well. It's not that I've given a lot of money to certain causes. All these things, they don't matter to you, God. It's Jesus. He's my one and only hope. He's the one I worship. It's reverence and repentance. I've seen and tasted of this living God. And I've, in the midst of it, I've turned away from my former life. And I just, all I want in this life is Jesus. He's my only hope. He's my only plea. He's my only cry. Reverence and repentance. Now look, I genuinely believe that there is a hunger for this kind of worship that is beginning to move here in our country, all right? I do. I believe that there's deep down inside of any person that's in this room, this deep hunger to see the living God, to experience the living God, to walk with the living God. You're created for it, whether you're, you've blinded yourself and pursued it in different places or ways. You have a deep longing inside of you. And then, look, there's been stuff that's happened within just the last couple of weeks where you just see a, like an outpouring of the work of God that's happening, and people are flocking to it. So last week I talked about like this movement that's happening in Asbury University in Kentucky. Um, I think our natural response is that we have both just the cynicism about it, but also a curiosity that we like, we doubt that what is actually taking place is real, but deep down in our hearts, we really hope that it is true. You know what I'm saying? And so as people have gone, there's literally been thousands of people within the last couple of weeks that have gone to Asbury just to see if it's legit. And as they go, 
they are met by like a wait of nine plus hours to get into the chapel. And so people are like waiting in line just to get into the room because they want to see is like they have the cynical like side of them, but they also have the curiosity and they get in the room. And what's happening is it, it seems to be what is happening there is legit. It's not like they have a bunch of lights that are going on, a lot of smoke that's filling the room. It, you just see it's like just old school, just a bunch of students that are there singing. They have students that have gotten up on the stage and they're like confessing their sin and the whole room explodes in applause like what we probably would see in heaven whenever a sinner repents. It's like what's happening in the room. Like people are being confronted with the living God. They see their sin and they're repenting of it. I, I think there's like this desire that goes on inside of us of like we actually wanna see and experience that. Now, God is God. <laughs> he's going to move and he's going to work where and however he wants. We know that there's like a way that he does it because we look at the scriptures and there's like a pattern. And the place that usually the movements of like this reside are in his church. These, these outbreaks of God moving and working in our midst usually take place in the church. You don't have to go far in the New Testament to find it. You see in Acts that as the church is literally getting its start, you have 200 people that are coming together and they're singing and they're praying at the Passover and then the Holy Spirit comes down and then literally thousands of people trust in Jesus. And there's this movement and this work that happens in the midst of people and people see their sin, they see the beauty of God and they give their life to Christ. You see it again that happens in Acts 13 in the church of Antioch. There's this, the church is gathered together. They're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. And then what happens, God speaks. And he sets apart Paul and Barnabas to go and do church planting efforts across the world. You see it again in Corinth. You see it again in Ephesus. You just see these works that God does. And where does he, like, where does the outbreaking happen? It happens in the church. And, like, here's, here's what I want. Like, if I'm just trying to place a vision for us of, like, where are we want to go. Like, the question that I want us to consider is just, why not us, God? Why not us? Like, if there's one plea that we have in our hearts, is like, do it again, God. Would you come and you do it again? Would you show up? Would you do what seems unthinkable to this world? Would you come and like, would you show us who you are and then would we get a glimpse of who we are that we would have reverence and that we'd have repentance and that we would move forward as the church living life with God here. And this is what I literally want us to do for the next 40 days, okay? So what we're about to do is we're about to enter into the Lenten season. And most of us are like, well, that's just fish fries and carnivals, like, <laughs> What are, you, what are we going to do? Well, historically, Lent is a period of preparing your heart for the celebration of the resurrection of Easter. And what happens here is a lot of the patterns that you see in the life of Noah here in Genesis chapter 8. You have this seeking the Lord in worship that takes place. There's prayer and there's fasting that happens in the life of the church as we look towards Jesus. We look towards the hope of our salvation, that Jesus isn't dead in a grave, but he's seated at the right hand of God. And we, we seek him and we fast and we pray, but then you also see like we look sin 
and death in the face on Ash Wednesday? What's the thing that we recite at Ash Wednesday? From dust you are made to dust you will return. We are confronting sin and death. We stare it in the face, not as a people that don't have a hope, but be the people that have the everlasting hope in Jesus Christ. And so look, what I want us to do over the next 40 days is I want us to actually lean really hard into this. Like let's come on Wednesday where we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing. It's just us doing what the church has done since its beginning. We come and we're going to sing songs about this Jesus. We're going to pray and we're going to plead that he'd be present here with us. And then I want us to be a church that fasts and prays in our everyday life, that we're seeking the presence of God in our life, that we're making and sacrificing space in our life to be with God, to fellowship with God, and to commune with God. That we get into the scriptures and we're soaking it in. We're literally coming for the meal and not just for the snacks. That we're coming, that we want a taste of this Jesus that is promised when we come to him, then we eat, eat and we feast on him, that he shows up and he changes our life. Like feast, the, this idea of fasting is something we don't practice a lot in the church, but man, Jesus expected the church to fast. They, his disciples didn't fast while he was there because the bridegroom was here, but he said, whenever I leave, the church will fast again. When they fast, Jesus gives instructions for what it looks like for us to do it. And fasting, all it is, is you are, what you're doing is you're trying to take, you starve yourself of something good so that you can taste something greater. You starve yourself of food so that you can taste the goodness and the glory of God in your life. What you're trying to do is you're trying to put your stomach where your heart is in your ache for Jesus. Like, I, I want Jesus here. Jesus, come back. The promises that we just sang about in that song earlier, the second song that we sang, like all these promises that we have in Jesus, we're ready to f experience the actual real result of all of it. What we have here in part, we're ready to experience in full. And so we're just... This anticipation and this expectation over the next 40 days, we're seeking God. We're, fa we're fasting, we're sacrificing, we're laying down things that are good for something greater. We're putting our stomachs where our heart is that we ache for Jesus. I want us to do this and practice this as a church. And so two things, all right? As you leave here, consider your fast. Look, this is supposed to be hard. It is. It's supposed to be hard. You're supposed to choose something, whether it's meat or something that's in your life, whether it's intermittent fasting. You're not doing it so you can lose the weight, but you're, you're doing it so you can know the living God. Like you, you practice the fast and then the aches that happen in your stomach, they lead you towards prayer and pursuing the presence of God in your life. And then you plan for fellowship. You look at your, your life, you look at your schedule and you say, where am I going to meet and feast on Jesus in my life? Where am I going to go get in the scriptures? Where am I going to go saturate myself in Jesus over the next 40 days? What does that look like for my life? Where am I going to sacrifice so that I can pursue this? And look, if we do this as a church, I want us to have the expectation that God's going to do something, that he's actually going to show up, that our our gatherings when we hear on Sundays, they're going to look completely different because God shows up. When you come and get into the word, that the word like jumps out at you because it's like it, it really is alive and you're learning more and more about this Jesus. And then over the course of the next 40 days that we see 
the, the darkness that's inside of us is being put to death, literally the sin that it feels like we've never been able to just get over the hump, that God's doing a work in our life and he's killing sin in our life because we're pursuing Jesus. Literally, the darkness inside of us as well as in the city is being waged. There's a war that's waged against it because of the way that we're pursuing Jesus together over the next 40 days. Are you in? So look, as we do this, may we be the people that are expectant that God would stir and that he would work and that he would move amongst us in the next 40 days and that we would taste of the goodness of Jesus, that we would know Christ, the power of his resurrection, that Easter Sunday comes and it's just this massive celebration, like our, our souls are leaping out of our chest. May it be. May it be. Let's pray.